0: Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read this passage in just a couple of moments, but I'd like you to have your Bibles opened there to this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 11. All right, actually, while you're turning there, let's uh, pray together, shall we, this morning? Father, we come before you and we are grateful to you for your kindness to us today. We are grateful to you for the privilege that we've had to gather together to meet with one another. You work in us and we're grateful you we encourage one another by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We have listened to one another and, and joined in in singing praise to the glory of your great grace. And and we've sung about how when you uh, wrap up history and bring history to an end, the Lord Jesus will re, will remain victorious over all. Uh, we have uh, given cheerfully, we have said amen as Ray has prayed, uh, and now we have your word open before us. You, you command us when we when we gather together to give attention to the teaching and preaching of your word, so here we are sitting in obedience to you. We come by uh, according to your command, and we come in faith, asking you that you would teach us, that you would correct us, instruct us, admonish us through this word that we have open today. Give us ears to hear. Take this mighty book that is powerful and living and sharper than any two edged sword to do the surgical work that the Spirit of God deigns to do through it meet with us and help us may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight O god our savior redeemer shepherd and friend we pray these things together in the name of the lord jesus saying amen kathy and i purchased the bedroom furniture that is in our house from a furniture store in dallas texas on knox street called Weir's Furniture, W-E-I-R apostrophe S, Weir's Furniture. Now, most of the furniture in Weir's Furniture is not, was not affordable to us, is not affordable to us, but uh, every now and then, Weir's Furniture has great deals, and we took advantage of them and bought uh, one of the furniture, the furniture that we own in our bedroom. One of the reasons that people like to shop at Weir's in Dallas is because of the guarantee, the, the promise They make a promise to all their customers that if you are not completely satisfied for whatever reason, they will take the furniture back and refund you the money, no questions asked. Uh, We had a friend when we lived in Dallas who worked at Weir's, and she told me about a man one day who came in, and he was dissatisfied with the leather couch that he had purchased because of the stain that was on it. So, uh, in true to their word, they agreed to take the couch back, and they refunded his money. And when the couch made it back to the warehouse... It became immediately apparent what had caused the stain on his couch. This man styled his hair with pomade. You remember what pomade is? That greasy wax? You put it in your hair? I wouldn't know. You put it in your hair, and it lasts for days. So he'd rub it in, and then he'd sit on his couch and lay back and fall asleep. And when the couch got to the warehouse, there was a pomade induced head-shaped stain in the leather but a promise is a promise they took it back I understand that Land's End has the same uh, promise makes a similar promise about his about their backpacks a lifetime warranty I was in the store one day uh, uh, and I saw a woman return a backpack this backpack was 10 years old and had been carried to a child carried by a child to school every day. Actually, it looked like it had been dragged by a child to school every day and then given to the dog to play with. Frankly, it looked like the dog had given birth several times on the backpack. And and there she was returning this horrid piece of fabric. And the reason, why are you returning this? She said, the zipper's broken. (laughs) And they took a bag and gave her a new one because a promise is a promise. A few weeks ago, we read one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. It was a promise that God made to David about his dynasty. The house of David would endure, and it would produce a king who would rule forever. And this king would have such a close connection to God that it would be as if this king is God's own son. Some of you have a really close friend like that. Do you have really close friends? Maybe they're really close friends of your parents, and you grew up calling them Uncle John or Aunt Mary. We had friends like that in our home church in Perry. Uh, uh, there was a couple that adopted, uh, my sisters and I, a- as grandparents. They adopted us, you know, and, and we called them Grandma and Grandpa. There was no blood relation, but, but we were close. The king will be God's son. Now, just as an aside, you, you know, right, how the promise in Second Samuel is fulfilled in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus shows up and he's not just God's son because of a close connection. He's God's son by nature. He's God the son. We'll let that bide for now. The promise is in Second Samuel 7, that first promise. And the question that's going to occupy Second Samuel in the chapters that follows is this. How durable is this promise? Is this a no questions asked kind of promise? The problem is not going to be, of course, God's reliability, but what about David's reliability? Can David take God's promise and, as it were, drag it to school for ten years, let the dog play with it, leave it in a snowbank for for six weeks? How, How much damage can God's promise take? As as we look to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see the title of the text there. My text titles it, David and Bathsheba. This is a story you know well. In fact, it's one of two or three things that most people, whether they're inside a church or not, can probably tell you about this man named David. He was a shepherd who wrote songs. He was the guy who killed Goliath. And he was the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is the story of a great fall. Uh, it's been put to use as many uses over the years, this story has. I think the chief point of the story in the context of Second Samuel is to make us think about the durability of God's promise. We know that because we think about King Saul. King Saul was David's predecessor. Do you remember what happened to King Saul? King Saul was king over the same kingdom that David was ruling over with the same sort of uh, laws and instructions, and, and he disobeyed God. In 1 Samuel 13 we read about it. He didn't kill the the Amalekites like he was supposed to, like God had commanded him to. And because of that he lost his kingdom and he lost his dynasty. It was terrible. And now we have David. Arguably 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a worse collection of sins than what Saul did. And what's going to happen to, to David now? David must have been thinking about this. He must have been thinking about Saul because in Psalm fifty-one, eleven, 11, he, he confesses his sin. He says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Why does he pray that way? Because that's what happened to Saul. God's spirit had left Saul. So what's going to happen to David now? And actually the text demands that we move from what about David to what about me? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the recipient of some of God's great promises. How reliable are those promises? From God's perspective, they're completely reliable. But you don't live life like you know the Bible uh, calls God's people to live. You've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. And you read the Bible and you go to church and you serve. But you're selfish and you're greedy and you're lazy. You you lose your temper, and you're jealous, and you're filled with lust, and and you come to church on Sunday mornings, especially, oh, next week will be communion. and While those elements are passed out, you, you confess your sins, and you beg God to forgive you, and you promise that you'll never do it again, and you make that promise every time we gather together. I won't sin like this again, God, please forgive me. And you expect God to keep his promises to you. Why would he do that? Why would he keep his promises to you in light of how you dishonor and disobey him? This is part one of how the book of Samuel tackles this problem. This week in chapter 11, we're going to look at the fall part of the story. This is the bad news part of the story. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to consider from chapter 12 God's response. So we're going to walk through the text. This is a rich, it's a dense narrative. There's a lot to see here. We're going to read it. We're going to stop frequently. It's detailed. It's so detailed because in part, I think, God, the the narrator, uh, God working through the narrator, wants you to know how bad this is. If if, If 2 Samuel 11 had just started, David really messed up. Period and went on, you might not be inclined to take it very seriously. But here it is in full color, spotlights on it at all. Look what David did. Well, let's walk through the text, uh, shall we? So we're going to be in verses 1 and 2 where we find the setting of this story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israeli army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. All right, let's start. Let's stop here. Uh, By this brief description, we have uh, a sense already that something is is not quite right. It's not explicit in the text, but there are clues here. I want you to think about the contrast, see if, if this makes sense to you the contrast between David and David's army. The contrast between what they're doing. It's the springtime. It's after rainy season. There's a lot of crops in the field. So it's a great time for the army to go out and for the campaigning to do. This is to begin. This is what kings do. And David's army begins a conflict that resumes back in chapter 10 against the Ammonites. Uh, David's army had defeated the Ammonites in the battlefield. Now uh, he defeated them on the battlefield. They ran to the capital, that walled city, and now they're going to attack the walled city of Rabbah. And verse 1 tells us that David himself didn't go. Uh, He sent Joab instead, which is not necessarily a problem. Um, Back in chapter 10, verse 7, David did the same thing. It says in chapter 10, verse 7, I'll just read it. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. So that, that itself is not necessarily a problem, except there's this contrast that the narrator is making. David's army is out destroying and besieging and warring. What's David doing? Napping. He's, he's taking this beautiful siesta. It's, it's not uncommon In this culture, during the heat of the day, for you to take a rest right after lunch. It would start about noontime, and you just take a very brief rest. (laughs) David's rest lasts until evening. If you've ever ever laid down and thought, okay, just 20 minutes, all I need is a 20-minute power nap, and you wake up four hours later, and you're just very confused about who you are, and where you are, and what happened. Yes? Well... This is David. The army is out fighting David's napping. See that contrast? Now, in this point in time, when we're talking about this story, I've heard a lot of preachers talk about David's dereliction of duty, that he should have been out there, that he should have been working. That's, uh, that is uh, possible. There is some truth to that warning, I think. Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5 to be vigilant. He says, Be alert, be sober minded. There is a watchfulness that is a part of Christian discipleship that David seems to be ignoring here because he's napping. This is a watchfulness that can be exhausting. David is not very watchful here in this passage. Many people who have fallen into sin like this testify that it happened during downtime when they didn't expect it. See, um, we think that trouble comes in, in times of season, uh, stress and seasons of stress and labor and effort, and, uh, but temptation often comes knocking when um, not much else is going on, when your defenses are down. I told you before about the young man that David Paulson was counseling. Uh, he'd come to his, uh, David Paulison for help because of his persistent use of pornography. And David Paulson said to him, what I want you to do is this week, I want you to make a list of times that you're tempted and we're going to see if we can uncover any patterns in your life. And the young man, he kind of laughed and he said, oh, I, I don't need to do that. I, I can tell you exactly what happens every time. And this is how his story started. He said, on Friday nights, after a long week at work, when I'm really tired, and then the details of the story continue. The downtime. That may be part of the problem. I, a, a failure to keep watch is an element here, but this actually, I think, may be more of a warning about power. See, so the most common word in this passage, the most common verb in this passage, this whole chapter, is the word Sent. David sends and sends and sends and sends. David has power. He's in his 50s. He's been king for about 20 years. He's the king of a growing empire. He's one and one and one and one on the battlefield. He's done a lot for God. He's able to send an army to war and remain at home. Just, you know, aren't there some perks that he should enjoy? Aren't there some privileges that come with that sort of level of influence? In a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to, uh, Lord willing, have the opportunity to affirm in our church three men as elders. And one of the warnings that the Peter gives prospective elders is that they should serve willingly, not for dishonest gain. Do not become an elder in the church because of the prophets. Apparently, even in Peter's day, it was possible to go into church leadership for the money. So there's the warning that Peter gives. Do do you know anybody who has become rich through ministry? I think there's a whole television network dedicated to them. It's very easy to think that with power or a great history of service, there ought to be perks. There ought to be privileges. You can send soldiers and you can send generals and they do your bidding. Shouldn't everyone do your bidding? Aren't, Aren't there rewards Like the pretty girls that you see from your rooftop. Let's keep reading here. We'll start again at verse 2 and then read all the way through verse 4. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. This is a dense text. Um, there's a lot to see here. Let, let's, let's go through some of the, the details here. We're going to spend more time in this section, I think, than any other. The trouble begins here when David is up on his rooftop. He's trying to wake up from his nap, and he sees this woman bathing. There's, there are three places in the Bible between the book of Judges and the end of Chronicles that, that contain the phrase, he saw a woman, in that order in the Hebrew, he saw a woman. One of them is David. Two of them have to do with Samson. In Judges 14.1, Samson sees a Philistine woman. And then in Judges 16.1, he sees a prostitute. It's not good in the book of Samuel to be associated with Samson. Something's wrong here. The verb saw, it, it, it should, alarm bell should be going off in your mind, saw. It, it actually, saw sends us back to, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Here's David's fall, but it reminds us of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Eve, the text says, saw the fruit on the tree, and it was good for food and pleasing to the eyes. So it ties this passage back to Genesis 3, and it ties this passage forward to the warnings in 1 John about the lust of the eyes. Well, be careful, little eyes, what you see. careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down with love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. To live in this broken world is to know that there are things that you will see. There are things you will see regularly that God says you must not pursue. The text says that David saw a beautiful woman. She was very beautiful. In 1 Samuel 16, the text says that David himself was very beautiful. He was a really good-looking guy. And David now has met his match. So he sends to find out about her. We, we know the name of her father. The text says that her father's name was Eliam. And we know the name of her husband Uriah we'll get to it eventually, but at the end of Second Samuel, we find out that her grandfather's name actually was Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was one of David's greatest advisors. So there's Ahithophel, Eliam, Uriah. This woman is Ahithophel's granddaughter, Eliam's daughter, Uriah's wife, and not David's at all. And this is where he should have stopped. There's no sense in which she is his. But he takes her anyway. My translation doesn't, say, doesn't use the word take. Uh, it's in the Hebrew. If you have an ESV, the word take is in there. And it's in verse 4. David sent messengers to take her. Uh, do you remember what Samuel had told the people when they asked for a king? Uh, the people, but wait, a long time ago, before Saul was king, they'd come to Samuel and they said, we want a king. And Samuel said, you don't want a king. Oh, let me tell you what a king will do. He will take and take and take and take. A king will take your land for his own. He will take your money for your taxes. He will take your sons for his armies. He will take your daughters for his bakeries. And in David's case, he will take your daughter to his bed. Verse 4 also tells us about Bathsheba's condition. So the reason that she was bathing was to complete the necessary requirements of the law of Moses regarding purification after menstruation. So this has several implications. Subtly, the text is telling us she's purifying herself while David is getting ready to violate her. Which is a contrast between her purity and his violation. And then... Uh, The text also tells us she cannot be pregnant by her husband, Uriah. She's not pregnant now, and it couldn't have been Uriah because he's gone. So there will be no doubt about the baby, whose baby it is when the baby comes. And third, actually the text tells us by that, it's telling her that she's at her most fertile too. Now some people have made suggestions about Bathsheba's motives. And they wonder if she's bathing on the rooftop on purpose to lure David, that she was there to be noticed. I don't think that's the case. First, there's no hint of it at all in the text. The text ignores that completely. This is David's sin. And secondly here, if this were her plan, this seems like a really strange plan. How would she know to time this right so that David would be there alone and Uh, That just seems too far-fetched to be a plan. How would you manage that? One of the ways that the Bible describes the brokenness of the world is by telling us how powerful people, men mostly, have taken advantage of and abused women in more vulnerable positions. How do we know that the world is broken Because episodes like this happen all the time, and it's all over our newspapers. Story after story after story. That's what we're reading these days. Let me introduce you to David, King David, the son of Jesse, the Harvey Weinstein of the Old Testament. Here he is, this randy, middle-aged man. He has a harem of beautiful women, but he saw someone he wanted, and he took her, and he slept with her. Add David's name to the list of powerful, exploitive men that you know. Matt Lauer, Garrison Keillor, Charlie Rose, Bill Cosby, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Roy Moore, Al Franken, Larry Nassar, Jerry Sandusky, Kevin Spacey, John Conyers, King David. Put him on the list. And add Bathsheba's name to the list of the violated women. I find it very interesting in this text how the passage handles Bathsheba's name. And it handles it actually by not naming her. She's named once in the text actually. She's named in verse 3. It says she's Bathsheba. There's her name. That's the only time it appears in this whole chapter. And after that, she's referred to as the woman, or she, or the wife of Uriah. The Bible here is writing about her like David has treated her. He depersonalizes her. He dehumanizes her. Does that sound familiar? I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. The name's an afterthought to that woman. Here's that woman. In 2 Samuel chapter 11. To David, she's a pretty face and a useful body. The Bible knows how dehumanizing and depersonalizing abuse can be. Some of you know that firsthand. You're just a body. When God first introduced Eve to Adam, he said, Here she is. This is bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. She matches me. She's just like me. She's, I, I'm going to embrace her. She's not an object to be used and sent home while the sheets are still warm, but she's a person to be embraced. This reminds me, maybe because I just read it in the book of Genesis, of, of the story of God's interaction with Hagar in the book of Genesis. Remember this woman? She was a slave. Abraham and Sarah owned her. And they they wanted her to produce an heir, so they decided to use her as a surrogate mother. She was just a womb. And when her presence became a bother, Sarah was mean to her and she ran away. But God saw her and God knew her and God cared for her. I I think it's the story of 2 Samuel 11 comes along as the book of Second Samuel moves along, Bathsheba to these men, she's the woman, she's she, she's her. And In this chapter, she loses her husband, her home, her freedom. She loses her baby. That will come. But then God in his kindness sees her and knows her. And I think she gives birth to Solomon, the next king. An act of God's kindness to this, this abused, violated woman. Now let's let's keep reading here. We're going to start with the, the story of the pregnancy and then the cover up. So David has committed adultery. There's a baby on the way to prove it. gonna is he gonna do about that? Here's his plan. Verse five. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, "I'm pregnant." So David sent this word to Joab, Send me the Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When David came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. What did the king send? I don't know. Oysters, wine, and chocolate. That's my guess. You know, his plan... If he can get Uriah to go home and enjoy the comforts of his marriage while he's there, then the baby will be explainable and David will be off the hook. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Verse 10, David was told Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, now here's Uriah's answer, and it's important to think about this here for a minute. Some people think that Uriah maybe knows what has happened. You know, he he bunked with these servants. Maybe one of them told him. Maybe he's just curious. He just wonders, why is David so concerned about my love life? This is creepy. I I don't know. Regardless, what Uriah says to David condemns the king here. Verse 11. Uriah said to David, "The ark in Israel of Judah sorry, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife as surely as you live? I will do no such thing." So Uriah begins with the ark. God is determining his behavior. God himself is determining what Uriah is going to do. God's directing him. That's not the case with David. And second, Uriah has it in mind that while the troops are at war, there is no way that he will enjoy the benefits of his marriage. I wish David had had that same attitude toward his troops. I wish David had been thinking about his troops as much as Uriah was thinking about his troops. There's a a precedent in David's army that when, uh, because Israel's wars are holy wars, then the soldiers need to be abstinent during times of conflict. And Uriah is committed to that. David is not committed to that. But you know, it's the perks of power, right? The story gets worse, verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. It's been said before, Uriah is a more upright man drunk than David is sober. It's it's possible that here we're supposed to think about the Ammonites and where the Ammonites came from. David soldiers, David soldiers, his army is fighting the Ammonites. Do you remember where the Ammonites came from? So uh, Lot, we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And remember abraham 's nephew Lot Lot was ran from Sodom and Gomorrah because God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. and Lot and his daughters ran from the city and they were hiding in a cave somewhere and, and the daughters were concerned about their family line and what was going to happen. They were going to have any descendants, no children to take care of them. So on two successive nights, the daughters got their uh, father drunk and uh, 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 approached him, and they both conceived babies. one of them was named Ammon and he became the father of the Ammonites. And now David's trying to get Uriah drunk so that he'll go home to his wife. How in the world can God's promise endure this? What right does David have to even think that God's not going to throw him out like he threw Saul out? What right do you have to think that after all that you have done? We move here in the text from coveting your neighbor's wife, David coveting his neighbor's wife, to committing adultery, and now we move to murder. If this story continues, maybe David will be able to break all ten of the commandments. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city... Under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech son of Jerabesheth?'" That's a reference to Judges. Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Then the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage adult, uh, Joab. There are important details here uh, in the text. You know, we have to think about. Joab must have been surprised by the instructions that David sent him. Uh, he obeyed them. They're not actually very uh, coherent instructions. How does David think that in the chaos of battle, he's gonna, Joab is going to be able to isolate one guy so that he gets killed by the enemy? It's not a It's not a great plan. Sin makes you stupid, and, and David is the plan's not great. In fact, Joab recognizes that in order to kill Uriah, he's going to have to sacrifice several soldiers, so he does. The penalty for adultery is death. David should die for his sins. He's not going to die, so someone else will have to die. Uriah will have to die for David's sins. The messenger that came back to David from Joab, he must have been really confused. How, if David is upset about this bad battle plan, how is he going to be happy to know that Uriah is dead? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, Saul and Jonathan died on, in the battlefield, and David was devastated. He mourned publicly and wrote a song about it made everybody sing it. Why would he be soothed at the death of Uriah as if that would be good news that he would receive? That messenger must have been very confused. And there's David's words to Joab. They're just galling. Oh, don't worry, Joab. You know, who, who knows in battle? People die. You know, the sword comes, one person dies, another person dies. Who knows? Well, you know if you've plotted to kill them. You know. Now, the end of the story of uh, uh, this part, of uh, part one, comes in verses 26 and 27. It's, it's the marriage between David and Bathsheba. And you should, before you read it, you should understand there's more going on than just a marriage. Do you remember in the Old Testament the custom? It's called, this is a technical term for it, leveret marriage. Okay, You'll remember if I start describing it. So if there's two brothers, and the older brother is married, and his wife dies... The younger brother was supposed to marry the, the widow. No, not his wife died. Sorry, I got that wrong. Let me start again. It's simple. Okay, so uh, two brothers. The older one is married. And if he dies, that's important. If he dies, the younger brother is supposed to marry the widow and they're, to have a child. And that child will be considered the heir of the dead brother. It was Israel's social security system. It was... This is where we get the concept of the kinsman redeemer. It was a way for the nation to keep uh, the the genealogies full and rich and and growing. Now, just think about this here. David is going to marry Bathsheba, and it must appear to distant observers that this is what David is doing. Look at this. David loves Uriah like a brother. And he's going to ensure that Bathsheba is taken care of and that there's an heir. This is just wonderful. And then when the baby, when she's pregnant, oh, it's so great. Look what David is doing. It's fantastic. Well, look at what the text says. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, about a week, David had her brought to his house And she became his wife and bore him a son. And here's the bomb at the end of this chapter. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. More literally, the the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. When God's people in the Bible do what is evil in his eyes, there is trouble. All the way through this passage, we read through this story and we read about what David's done and what David does, and we think, oh, David, no, 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 David, don't do that. And, and we get to the last line of this passage and we think to ourselves, not, oh, no, we think, oh, oh. God knows. David thinks that he got away with it, but God knows. God knows what's going to happen now to the promise to David's dynasty. David, don't you realize what you've done? God knows. Now, what do we learn from this story? Two things I want to share with you. The second one, I think, is more central than the first, but we'll start here. Number one, God's people are capable of grievous evil. God's people are capable of grievous evil. Do you see how the the realistic the Bible is? How realistic the Bible is about our capacity, the capacity of God's people to sin like this? Your capacity. I mentioned this this morning because I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to quit following Jesus when you hear about your spiritual hero and his or her grievous sin, because God's people are capable of grievous sin. If David, even David, if David, the the, the great king, the psalm singer, the warrior, the man who trusted God to give him his throne and who wanted to build a temple and who sang with abandon before him, if David can do this, you should not count anyone out. If David can sin like this, all of us are capable of grievous evil. That's why when the Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another, that's an intimidating command. It's frightening. But you know, our own theology, our own, our own understanding of what the Bible teaches about human nature, it, it prepares us for that. It, it prepares us to hear terrible things. We don't rule them out as a possibility in fallen human beings in this world. We read the church covenant when we meet together formally. We read our church covenant. I have not kept any of the agreements in the church covenant perfectly. And when I read it, it's half confession and half aspiration. It's part prayer and part confession. At the Sunday night seminar that we had in, in December, I told the couples that had gathered there about uh, some, a conversation that we had at our table a, a, a few months ago. Uh, I, I don't want my children to walk away from the faith when one of their spiritual heroes falls. So I, I was talking to them about a friend of mine, he's a pastor, who had, had to leave the ministry, was fired from his church because of sexual sin. So we were talking about this, and 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 one of my children with a great deal of kindness and sincerity, said. She said, we know you'd never do anything like that, Dad. It's my goal not to, but sinful people break their promises. If it happens to someone you admire, you love, you will be tempted to quit. You'll be tempted to walk away from the faith. Don't do that because God is more trustworthy than any of the teachers or preachers you admire. You'll think to yourself... If he can't do it, if she can't make it, what hope do I have? Or you'll think to yourself, if what we believe wasn't enough to keep them from sinning like that, why it's not going to be enough for me either. Why should I even bother? This story is in the Bible to remind us that we need a king who is even better than David. As awesome as he is, we need someone even better. There's only one Savior. There's only one person who is worthy of this sort of trust. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who lived perfectly the life that we should have lived and the only one who died the death on the cross for our sins that we deserved. Only he, only he is our savior. He's the only one we look to with that sort of faith. If your hero falls like this, your hero falls like this, it will and it should cost him or her their public platform. They should leave vocational ministry. They should stop selling their books and stop broadcasting their sermons. They should get off the radio. They should shut down their Twitter feed. They should stop posting on their blog. It should cost them their public platform. And for some of them, they should go to jail. They should be in prison. But don't let their actions rob you of your faith. Because you're not saved by them, only by the Lord Jesus. God's people are capable of grievous evil. Now, here's a second lesson from the text. I think it's more clear here, even than that. You cannot hide your sin from God. You cannot hide your sin from God. This is how Bob Chisholm summarizes the weight that falls, verse 27. God knew the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You cannot hide your sin from God. David, he he covered his sin perfectly. And up until this very end, it looks like he's going to get away with it. But God knows. Proverbs 5.21 For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. Jeremiah 16:17, God says, My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Psalm 98, the psalmist prays, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. There's a question that screams at me from this passage. Here it is. Why are you not more afraid? Why, Joel Divini, are you not more afraid of this? of your potential to do something like this. Some of you know that uh, last month I had the, the opportunity to speak at a funeral of my uncle. It was, a great, it was a great privilege. It was the second time that I have had to do that. Uh, my family's very encouraging and kind. I, I think if I stood in front of them and spoke coherent English, they would be proud. They gave me more kindness than I deserved. My aunt said to my dad, she said, You know, if he lived closer, I would go to his church. That was nice. She lives in Florida. There were a few weeks at the beginning of January that I thought about it, you know. I really considered it. How could I ever tell my aunt, I think about this, I read passages like this, how could I ever tell that aunt that my church had fired me for my sexual sin? How could could I ever face one of my cousins at one of our family reunions? How could I look at them if this was ever true? It's a terrible thought. But why? Why, Joel Devaney, are you not more afraid of the fact that you cannot hide your sins from God? So I ask you this question. Is this question ringing in your ears? Why are you not more afraid? Why are you so flippant toward your sin? Why doesn't it bother you more that you have lied to your spouse, that you have deceived your parents, that you've made your accountability partners think that everything is okay? Why doesn't it terrify you the amount of time and energy that you have spent covering up your sin? Jesus said you you should fight for purity with the intensity that it would take to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. Do you know why you don't do that? Because you think you can hide your sin from God. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. It's going to cost him dearly. For a while, David is going to wonder if God is going to revoke his promise. We're going to look next week, Lord willing, at how God responds. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we plead with you. We ask you that you would take the message of this chapter of Scripture, this story, and that you would embed it deeply into our hearts. Lord, we confess to you that we are flippant about our sin. We we take things very easily. We confess very quickly and we are unafraid. Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us reverent fear, holy terror of your righteous judgment, of your justice. Father, I pray that you would cultivate this in us so that we might flee from temptation, that we might fear sin, that we might fear your great name and have a higher regard for it than the desires that reside within us. Lord, we live in this broken world, how we need you to change what we see and how we weigh what we see. Make us afraid, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.